I'm Elena Lansberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move, the podcast that kicks old stereotypes to the curb. Come meet these creative, outrageous, authentic, adventurous, irreverent, and powerful disruptors and influencers. Grandmothers, from the living room to the courtroom, making powerful contributions in every walk of life. We know them most intimately as loving caregivers, the older women in our lives with a thousand stories about their grandchildren and pictures in their purses. In this podcast, you'll come to know even more about our grandmothers. They are galvanized, determined, and are guaranteed to get you thinking. What drives them? What are they up to? What is the potential of grandmother power, and how is it changing the world? Grandmothers are on the move. You don't want to be left behind. Hi, it's Ilana. Welcome back to Grandmothers on the Move. And today I have a really special conversation to share with you. I'm talking with Peggy Antribus, who's from the Caribbean, living and working in many of the island states. She holds a bachelor's degree in economics, a professional certificate in social work, a doctorate in education. And since 1974, when she served as the advisor on women's affairs to the government of Jamaica and established their Women's Bureau, she's been working for the advancement of women's rights and development. You should know that in 1978, Peggy set up the Women in Development WAND unit at the University of the West Indies and is a founding member of many regional international organizations like CAFRA, the Caribbean Association for Feminist Research and Action, and importantly, DAWN, the Development Alternatives with Women for a New Era. She served on more boards and advisory committees than I can name, international organizations and consultancies and advisors to UN agencies, everything from UNIFEM to the Rockefeller Foundation. And today I want to share with you the conversation that Peggy and I had that ranged on everything from women's rights to her deep reflections on a lifetime of work on development and intersectionality and some of her own very personal experiences that led her to the kind of leadership and life that she has lived. Peggy, it's such an honor and a delight to speak with you today. And I know that retired or not, you are still going strong. I'm 83 this year. So I've been officially retired for 23 years. Quite amazing to me that I'm doing the same kind of projects that I was involved in 20 years ago. I'm just amazed that I'm still doing those kinds of things, you know, project (laughs) development, mentoring, networking, organizing, serving on boards, even as I am now 83 and very aware of the things that I can't do anymore. How has it changed for you? I mean, when you were doing it in your younger years, you were doing it in a particular context. How does it change to be doing this work in your mm. life? It's, it's very interesting because the conditions are so different now, you know, in a sense, I'm doing the same, but very differently. So I don't feel that I have to be responsible for making sure that this project works anymore. I'm much more relaxed about that because I am more aware of having absolutely no control over outcomes, <laughs> you know, so wow. that's one thing. Now I do not do the things that I don't want to do, which I had to do when I was younger. So, you know, I had to be responsible for managing a project, raising money, talking to officials. That's one of the great things I don't have to do anymore. I like to say I have a very bad attitude to governments now. So I do not (laughs) feel that I have to sit down and listen to politicians or to the heads of agencies who are saying meaningless things. You know, you know that they're using words and don't mean a word of it and they have no commitment to it. So I have that kind of freedom now. So I only do the things that I enjoy. 
I have a circuit. I travel constantly between the Caribbean and Miami, where I have two grandchildren, and Canada. One of the things is I love travel. I can't do that anymore. So when I say I can't do it, I can't go far away places because I don't want to be going to a meeting of activists and having to use a wheelchair. So I have to get over that because I don't see anything wrong with that. But anyway, I can walk. I carry a cane to remind me of my age. When I was in my 70s, I had a very bad fall right outside the UN. I was racing across First Avenue to go to a panel mm. and I fell flat on my face and the oh. security guard said, oh, call this paramedics and said, a 50-year-old woman has just fallen down. I said, excuse me, sir, I'm 75. And I thought to myself, you know, if I was using my cane, I would have remembered that I'm not 50 anymore and <laughs> not supposed to race across First Avenue like that and trip on a curb. And so there's a couple of different dimensions of it. What I hear you saying is one is really physical and Mm -hmm. one is also almost liberatory in the sense that you you preserve yourself now or you just choose things with more intentionality. Yes, right. So it's certainly a kind of freedom that comes, but that is in contrast to the physical limitations. (laughs) I actually have heard that from a lot of activists. Because you're aware that you're coming to the end of those years, life becomes more precious and so you you don't want to waste your time doing things that you don't enjoy doing. You're yeah. more intentional in how you choose to spend your time. You spent a lifetime working on women's rights and development and economic rights. I mean, you've worked at it from so many different vantage points. It's really fascinating from within government, from within women's movements and building women's movements. Peggy, if you can talk about that piece of it, but perhaps from the place that you sit now, looking at what's happened over the last three decades of that work. Well, from where I sit now, I'm just struck by how very, very fortunate I have been to be, in a sense, in the right place at the right time. It's true that I've been a pioneer in all those ways, starting institutions, networks, but it's all just good luck, (laughs) unless you believe in something called the universe. And I do believe that it was meant to be that I was in those places, because one thing has really led to the other. In fact, I often say this, you know, I'm so glad that I lived in that time. It was such an exciting time. But even before the 70s and the women's movement, I have to go back to being so fortunate to have been coming of age at a time when we were on the eve of independence. And all the excitement that was there at that time in the Caribbean, coming out of colonialism, and we are about to become independent. And I remember choosing to do a degree in economics for that reason. I wanted a degree in economics because that is how I could contribute to Caribbean development. Little did I know that the degree in economics wouldn't really help very much, but, you know, (laughs) the unlearning of some of that, my recognition of the limitations of some of what I learned at a British university, neoclassical economics, coming to recognize the limitations of those disciplines, becoming a feminist and seeing so many things differently. That is part of what I think has been a great blessing for me, a great opportunity for me. And then to have been in Jamaica on the eve of International Women's Year and being invited to head the Women's Bureau for the government of Jamaica, never having heard the word feminist, but discovering it through the work that I was doing. And at a time when there were all of these possibilities through the Decade for Women and beyond, being involved with the Dawn Network, the network of third world women that really helped me to see everything differently again. And today, there's been this incredible reversal of all of these rights that I fought for with the Trump administration, this complete pushback, but creating a new opportunity. You know, these last two days I've been listening, I've been glued to the television, watching Judge Kavanaugh's hearings, you know, for the Supreme Court. And 
realizing the incredible power of women. And in a sense, Trump's presidency has just given women such an incredible opportunity for mobilizing that wasn't there before. So looking at it as somebody who's participated in that very exciting time of the decade for women and coming at the movement from the South, where we're constantly trying to help women in the North to see that you cannot just be advocating for women without looking at race and class and international relations, you know, and pushing for this intersectionality, which was just <laughs> not a word, but how we lived as women from the South to seeing now. Finally, because of Trump, <laughs> because all of those things have come together in a, right. an amazing way. Yeah. And the energy of women now is just in the United States, just amazing. Did you see the, those young women confront Jeff Flake? Did you see that in the yes, elevator? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Wow. And of course, that wouldn't have meant anything to him if thousands of women had not been protesting all over the country. You know, it's really a very inspiring moment for somebody like myself. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that I've found important, not just interesting or historical or about legacy, which is the way that I find people tend to talk about, in particular, older women and older women's activism, which I don't find very compelling because what I have found speaking to lots of women activists who have this overarching perspective is that it really does help you see and hear where the development has been and where the real obstacles are. So it's particularly yeah. interesting to me to hear you talk about how intersectionality, not just as rhetoric, has really come home to roost in a sense that you mm -hmm. can't mm -hmm. make progress now if you're not dealing yeah. with You see, it's a level of consciousness. It's an awareness mm -hmm. of the connections, the intersection of race, class, and gender. You have to live that to, to move on it. Mm -hmm. If it's just talked about at right. an intellectual level and you don't recognize it in your own life, then mm -hmm. it's a different thing. Right. But I think people are recognizing it now. It's hard to think that things have to get so bad before mm. women start to <laughs> yeah, die. I know. But that's life. That's life. One of the things that your mother ended by saying, there's an optimism that comes from surviving. Yes. You know, so yeah. I think what it is, is that you see that you've been able to overcome these things. So you know that that will continue to happen. You take the long view, in other words, and you can't just give up. You see other people carrying that struggle. So, you know, it will continue. I want to ask you about that because I've been involved in a lot of kind of BS women's leadership stuff in my working life. Some of it was very real, but a lot of it I felt wasn't. The leadership models were quite weak or they were, or it was all about women parliamentarians. Yeah. Oh, well, yes. You know, very That's one of my real, I have a real thing about that. <laughs> so do I. I have a, I, a real thing is the way to put it. You know, here it is. I mean, if your ambition is to become first woman president or a member of parliament and a prime minister, if that's your ambition, then that's very narrow. That really restricts you because in a sense, you have to play by the rules and you are not a change agent. I know that you feel the same way. Right, absolutely. So, and then it's this idea that leadership is somebody at the top of this. No, leadership is everywhere. So I have a very different feeling about leadership. For me, a leader is somebody who wants to change something at whatever level, within her organization, within her home. It has to start with you. You have to take charge of your own life first before you can do anything else. In a sense, that's another way of looking at the intersections, you know, mm -hmm. the person 
personal and the political. So you have to free yourself up first before you can be part of any kind of movement for change. Can we explore that a little bit more? Because from the very first time I ever met you, you just instantly communicate a kind of principled and political leadership. You became a leader within a movement building context around women's mm-hmm, rights. Mm-hmm. I wonder, how did that feel when you were in the midst of doing it? And when you look at it now as a leader in your 80s, what are your reflections? Well, first thing that comes to my mind when you said that is that I don't know how that happened. I think it's the intersection of who you are as a person and how you treat the circumstances of your life. It's dealing with struggles that shape you, that shape me. What do you think were the elements that brought you to a place where you enacted your leadership in the way that you have? Okay, so let me talk a little bit about that because mm-hmm. there are two levels. I mean, one is uh, very personal. The other one is the political, although the two link. So I will start with some personal stuff about how I shaped my values and my work style and say right. that, you know, many people can refer to things, advice and admonitions that their parents or grandparents gave them as a child growing up. And I don't remember any any of that. But what I do know is that as I get older, I realize how much I've learned from observing my parents and my grandparents. Right. So both of my parents were dedicated public servants. They worked with the, at that time, of course, the colonial civil service. Right. And later on, as the countries became independent, they both had a very strong work ethic. You know, I remember them both working very disciplined, very hardworking, very dedicated to excellence in their own work. My mother was a secretary. My father rose to the highest ranks of the public service in the Caribbean. And I think my own work ethic and my commitment to public service definitely comes from that. But the other piece has to do with my own life experience and some pretty horrendous things that had happened. And my commitment to gender justice really comes from a feminist analysis of my own life experiences. And these experiences are pretty horrendous and I want to list them because I think that they can be a source of strength if you can get over them. I think there are two kinds of people, the people that go under when Mm -hmm. they're faced with life's challenges and Mm -hmm. uh, the people that overcome them. Mm -hmm. And the people that overcome them, I think, come out on the other side with a new layer of strength. My wish for younger people is that they have enough challenges so that they build their strength over time. Mine started as a survivor of sexual assault as an eight-year-old, which I never talked about, except to my husband. So there's something about Dr. Ford's uh, thing really resonated with me. Yes. Never told my parents, never told my friends, never talked much about it until a niece of mine came out and wrote about her own experience of sexual harassment throughout her school days by both classmates and teachers. She came out with that story within the context of the Me Too movement. And I thought, I'm going to tell mine too. Because although most of my advocacy has been about economic issues, macroeconomics in particular, critiquing policy frameworks, I realized that a lot of what drives me and my commitment to gender justice really comes from my two sisters who were murdered in their 20s. I was 40 at the time, and, and this happened on the eve of my taking up my post as advisor on women's affairs. And I realized mm-hmm. after a while that that experience is really what fuels my passion for justice. And it was in the context of that Me Too movement that I then made the link between my own experience of sexual assault, my sister's murders, my niece, my son's fiancé was murdered by a stranger who tried to rape her. 
um, in the trial, his defense lawyer actually said if she hadn't screamed and fought, he wouldn't have strangled her. Well, can you imagine? Oh <laughs> you know, my God. Can you imagine saying a thing like that? It's no. her fault that she was murdered because yes. if she just shut her mouth and accepted it, nothing would have happened to her. Talk about blaming the victim, you know? Really? Yeah, That's that nice. was the moment. And it's only just a few years ago, long after I stopped doing my official work, that I put all of those pieces together. But a few years ago, I went to an astrologer who told me, in fact, all of that has gone into what has become my life's work, which is gender justice and as the foundation of social justice for everyone. I think that you can't be engaged in, in leadership and in empowering others if you don't find something within yourself, if you don't become aware of your own strengths and weaknesses and move from there. So yeah. I've had to think also, how did I survive all of that? It's really my mother. It's really watching my mother, how she dealt with my sister's murders, for instance. How did she come out of that with a spirit of generosity and love that was just amazing to anyone who met her in her last days. She died at the age of 106. So how mm -hmm. did she live, you know, to that age with that spirit, having gone through that stuff? And it, it's undoubtedly her faith. She's a very strong Roman Catholic. Now, that particular faith tradition I have rejected over the last few years. What I've found, which is basically the same thing, because where does faith come from? It comes from a place deep within yourself, discovering your own connection to something larger than yourself. It's not organized religion, but it is a deep and abiding understanding of our connection to other people and a source of strength, which is actually a source of love. And I think that I'm able to turn those horrors <laughs> into a source of strength. They're really hard stories to hear, even just the, the glimpse that you've given us, because it's so much suffering and so much based on what women go through and how pervasive it is. And you've had your own trauma as well. And I've been thinking a lot about how women overcome. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your grandmothers and their influence and how there is this kind of legacy of strength and resilience that women do pass on to one another in the face of an extraordinary amount of gender injustice. Well, certainly the main source of inspiration is my mother because I know what she went through. I don't know the details of what my grandmothers went through. But one of the interesting things about my grandmothers is that they both represent my different cultural legacies, put it that way, the African and the European. So I remember my African grandmother, who was African origin, with her bush teas. She would go into the yard and pick these leaves, these herbs, and make tea. My maternal grandmother, on the other hand, was European, and she would have these high teas every afternoon. She lived in town in St. George's, Grenada, and any of her friends from the plantations, from the rural areas who would be in town shopping or doing business would know that Millie Comijong had high tea every afternoon. So they would drop by. <laughs> really know the details of their lives, but that awareness of having African and European grandparents gave me a sense of, again, that connection, but the connection also to histories of struggles and resilience, which is part of the history of the Caribbean, how we overcame slavery to build new communities. 
The silence is uh, something else. I think the silence is a broken when you sense that solidarity with other people. And when you do the analysis, when you understand theoretically and politically what's happening, then you can break the silence. And I think that that is the power of the women's movement, you know, that it, yes. it creates a space for that kind of solidarity. If you don't break those silences, you can't create a just society if you don't talk about what's wrong. I thank you so much, Peggy, for sharing your own story and the insights that you've had over the years as you think about it and for the remarkable act of sharing it. And it does make me think about how we don't think that much about our grandmothers having these stories, holding these stories of their own harm, the kind of violence that they've experienced in their own lives or in the lives of women close to them and in their own families. And I'm really struck by what you're saying how alone women can feel in dealing with their own trauma and how important it is to feel connected to that greater analysis, being connected to other women, being involved in movements and how that can enable you or facilitate women to overcome and to feel that sense of solidarity and belonging, collectivity and of resistance and resilience. Yes, indeed. In fact, what you started out by saying was that we don't usually think of grandmothers as having those stories. When we think of grandmothers, we think of what they're doing for the next generation. They're nurturing, they're contributing in that way. Uh, mm. You don't realize that these are people who have very rich and deep stories of their own, which are not usually told. So I absolutely agree with that. And that it highlights how long, as you say, women have had to deal with these things. And for me, it, the intergenerational conversations are really important. And what I try to do at this stage of my life is to be available to mentoring young women who choose to be mentored by me. I don't think you can announce that you're going to be a mentor unless people want you to be their mentor. So people <laughs> right. have to choose you. You know, you can't just say, I'm a mentor. Right. People have to choose you. And so every now and then, young women choose to engage me in conversations. And I am deeply appreciative of that because I do think that we have to share those histories if we're to really understand what we're up against, how difficult it is going to be ultimately to change these things because they are so embedded in other structures of power, you know? Right. Class, race, gender, ethnicity, international. And I think all of those are things that I've learned from my connection with other women from the South, you know, the Dawn Network that I helped to found. So the visions are there and they need to be shared with the new generation so that the new generation of young women, our grandchildren, if you like, can continue that struggle and know their histories behind that. Grandmothers not just as nurturers of their individual grandchildren, but grandmothers as nurturers of the next generation of political leadership feminist leadership. The intergenerational dialogue and engagement goes both ways. You said earlier that you decided to break silence and tell your story more widely as a result of your niece telling her yes. story. Yeah, you know, an interesting thing just came to mind as you said that, Ilana. I've always learned from younger women because I came into this so late, <laughs> already 40 when I started doing this kind of work. And I realized that the people that taught me were younger women. I think that's one of the reasons I have this thing about young women's leadership. I'm still learning, in fact, from young women. You went into the world of political economy and not into the direct advocacy around gender-based violence. Right. First of all, I think they're all connected. It took me a while, but it's clear that they're all connected. Violence against women is 
as much part of the political economy as you can get. I mean, the policy frameworks that people call neoliberalism today, but which I started thinking about when they were introduced as structural adjustment, the conditionalities of the IMF support for countries in debt, are all grounded in a gender ideology that exploits women's time, labor, and sexuality. All of that economics that I learned at university had to be unlearned and thrown out when I began thinking about women's unwaged work. And the exploitation of that work and the exploitation of women, which is a form of violence, is at the very base of our economic model. So the fact that most of my advocacy has been about political economy and then making the connection and then seeing how, in fact, it's all informed, the driving force, in fact, is the violence and the violation of myself and people in my family. For me, it isn't hard to see that connection. It really does make the personal's political real. Mm -hmm. Yes. That feels very profound to me because that was a slogan I grew up with. Uh, yes. People don't examine that slogan mm-hmm. enough. You know, they just use it as a slogan. Tell me a little bit about grandmotherhood. How is it featuring in your life? I was not looking forward to being a grandmother. I was much too busy with my <laughs> life to be thinking, now my children are married. When are they going to get pregnant? When, are they, when am I going to have my first grand? I wasn't thinking about that at all. When my first grandchild was born, and I was in Barbados at the time, so I saw her when she was born, and it just absolutely blew me away. I just fell in love with this little person, and she's she's now 18, you know? So I have two children, a boy and a girl. My son gave me my first grandchild. My daughter has two children. They are now four and six. I just I just love being a grandmother, and becoming a grandmother really changed the way I thought about the future. It brought together the personal and the political in in a very specific way. Becoming a grandmother really changes your life. And I was very interested in the way your mother talked about it, because in a way it, it links the activism and wanting change. The reason is deepened because you want a different world now for those grandchildren you love. So it, it's much more personal now. I can't help but ask you then, as it's more personal now, if you were speaking to your 18-year-old granddaughter today about what you hope for her and the continuation of the work around women's rights and intersectionality and development, what would you say to her? I would say a few things. First of all, I think it's a great time to be a woman, to be female. There are incredible opportunities. Of course, there are still those challenges. I'm thinking about this weekend, listening to that woman's testimony. I was amazed at how it affected me. You know, I'm part of that Me Too. I Mm -hmm. shared my own story of abuse. And what really struck me was the memory bit, the bit about the selective memory. There's part of it that you remember so vividly and other parts you forget. Mm -hmm. But I want to say to my granddaughter that the most important thing is that she takes care of herself. She uses the opportunity she has through her education, but then she chooses what she wants to do with her life and that it's entirely in her hands how she shapes her life, but that if she can look beyond herself, that the greatest joy comes when she doesn't just focus on her own life, but she can see that she's part of something larger and to engage with some of those larger struggles. I hope that that is what she might find herself doing, although she chooses herself. I can see her moving in that direction because of what's happening with younger women today. They're much more socially aware, I think, than when I was growing up. That's what I would wish her, as I wished the graduating class of my high school, enough challenges to build her strength. 
as she goes through life and that it is possible for her to shape her life in the way that she wants. Well, she's lucky to have a grandmother like you to say that to her. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Peggy. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. I just love being reconnected with you. And Ilana, thank you so much for doing this work. Thanks for listening. I'm Ilana Landsberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move. If you want to find out more about me or the podcast, go to grandmothersonthemove.com and come back next week for another episode.